Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Welcome you this morning and those who might be visiting with us today. We welcome you. Glad that you've joined us here at Aurora Cornerstone. Uh, We're going to dive right into the scriptures. And so if you have your device or your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. How many here find the book of Revelation confusing? Would you raise your hand? My hand's up too. The rest of you, we really would like to spend some time with you and find out from the rest of you how you've got this thing figured out. Uh, Seriously, I've been doing this a long time and I still find Revelation. I have just finished reading it. It just landed on my schedule just at this time for my own personal reading. Just finished it last week, beginning of last week. I got to the end of it, and there's just a lot of weird stuff going on in Revelation. Uh, so we're going to dive into it. Here we go. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Follow along with me. The revelation Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants was what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. What is written in it? Because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. From him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, and so shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So, Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our hearts Give us the ability to comprehend what your spirit spoke in the early parts of this book. God, I pray that as we follow John to your heart, the heart of Jesus, that, Lord, we would begin to really embrace your heart in this final message that John gives to us, his church. Grant it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alas. Those who've been asking me to preach from the book of Revelation for five years, it's here. There are those who, I had more requests in the book of Revelation in the first two months of our pandemic than I think any time in my life. Uh, I said last week I've had more requests to preach from the book of Revelation than I have on any other book in the Bible. 
particularly the book of Malachi. And of course, I started off last week in the book of Malachi, Return Your Tithes to the Lord. Nobody's asked me to preach that message. And yet, I believe that the last book of the Old Testament and the last book of the New Testament relate that we will not understand the revelation if we don't put some things in order, priorities. Anyway, that was last week. If you weren't a part of that, I hope that you'll go back. It's on our, our website to listen to. Following John to the heart of Jesus. We are, this is session number 11. I'm going to promise to you, I shouldn't probably say promise, but I'm going to work my best to, in five sessions, talk from the book of Revelation to finish it up. So it'll be uh, towards the end of November. We have been, we started with the Gospel of John, and then we made our way through the letters, the love letters, really they're the love letters, to now the revelation. For the remainder of our journey, we're going to join John on the island of Patmos. Now, before you pack your bathing suit, you need to know a little something about the island of Patmos. Get out of your mind all these wonderful warm summer vacation islands down in the Caribbean, because the island of Patmos is not like that. The island of Patmos is in the Aegean Sea, and it's one big rock. No vegetation, really nothing to sustain life there. This six-mile-wide, ten-mile-long island is not Club Paradise, but this is where we are joining John for the next five weeks. We're going to the island of Patmos with him. Barren terrain, Rome owned it, and it was where they put their criminals. It's kind of like Alcatraz. Has anybody here been to Alcatraz? Okay, yeah, I've been to Alcatraz. I, I don't mean, I'm not insinuating you were at Alcatraz. Neither was I. But we did a tour of Alcatraz. And that's the, probably the best picture of the island of Patmos. It's, a, it's an island to banish the most hardened of criminals. You go there living, you come back dead. That's the way it works. Under the Roman rule of AD 81 to AD 96, Christianity was a criminal offense. And the apostle John had a fierce case of it. So he was banished to die on Patmos. Revelation. I was about 10 years old, and in Sunday school, back then we had Sunday school, it was before the service. Some of you may remember the days of Sunday school. So before you had your morning service, there was a 45-minute to an hour of Sunday school, children and adults and everybody alike in between went and had Sunday school teachers taught, similar to what we do during, but they did in Sunday school. I remember... I, there's a lot of lessons in Sunday school I don't remember, but I remember when we did a few weeks' worth of Revelation. I was about 10 years old. And interestingly enough, just an FYI, it was my sister who was the Sunday school teacher. She was seven years older, and so she was 17, but she was particularly brilliant, went on to be a school teacher and principal of a school, and now doctorates and teaches other teachers. And so she was, she was in her sweet wheel well teaching at the age of 17, and I was one of her students. 
And she taught from the book of Revelation. She was particularly good because she brought in charts. She colored them up throughout the week, and she brought them in, and she showed charts. And I, I, I was so transfixed with these charts the first time I heard Revelation. She showed me the chart of the seven churches, the, or sorry, the seven letters to the seven churches of the last day. Then she had a chart for the rapture of the church, the catching up to be with the Lord in the air. Then she had a chart for the seven sealed judgments and a chart for the seven trumpet judgments, seven, seven judgments coming upon mankind. And then what about the great tribulation? Another seven involved here. Seven years of the great tribulation were prior to the tribulation, the catching up of the church. And then wonderful, peaceful, glorious, prosperous three and a half years. And then in the middle, the break, the last three and a half years, the most horrific years the earth has ever endured since the flood. Then she had a chart with the two witnesses. Elijah, Moses, come back to life again in the city of Jerusalem. Woo, and then killed, left on the streets. Ugh. I remember, it freaked me out as a 10-year-old. And then, and then the false prophets, false prophets, false prophecy, false prophecy. And then the battle of Armageddon in the valley of Jezreel. Then the thousand-year millennial reign. Millennial, 1,000, thousand years. And then the thousand years speaking of where Satan is confined to the pit. And during that time, there are those who could still come to Christ, and then at the end, he's released from the pit, final judgment. I remember, I remember the charts, my sister. Allow me to start our time here today by saying the book of Revelations will never make sense. This is my opinion, of course. The book of Revelations will never make sense merely as a collection of prophecies until you approach it as a handbook on worship. I'll say that again. You will not, I don't believe you will make sense of the prophecies unless you approach it as a handbook on worship. I'm, that's going to be what I'm, my job today is to help you to see it's a handbook on worship. That's my job today, I feel, led. When we think of revelations, it's so easy to get caught up in the multivisions of revelations. I mean, chapter 4, verse 2, the multi-faced beings who are chanting around the heavenly throne. Chapter 6, the very colored horses galloping into the night with voices of thunder, giving them the command to charge. Chapter 9, Locust-like beings crawling on earth's surface with stingers in their tails. And if they sting you, it will be agony that you will not die. You will simply suffer. I mean, it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings all over again. My goodness. Chapter 13, the seven-headed, ten-horned monster that rises up out of the sea and given global control by a dragon. Chapter 16, demonic frogs and two-horned lambs bringing global warfare. Chapter 17, a blood-drunken, scarlet, purple-clad harlot who straddles a monster and sexually manipulates all of the world's politicians and then murders all the church leaders. Yikes! If we focus on the visions, 
we'll miss the point. <laughs> and people do. We miss the point of Revelation. It's often why I resist preaching it simply because somebody wants to figure out what's going on in the end times. I think there's better scriptures. I think Matthew's a much better scripture to go to than the book of Revelations if you want to know the times. If we focus on the visions and we miss the point that Jesus is the point. The point of Revelations is the vision giver, not the visions. It's him who gives the visions. The title of the book, Revelations chapter 1, verse 1, you turn to it, and it sets the course for the entire book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of end times. It's not the revelation of prophecies. It's not the revelation of weird and animal-like things happening. It's the revelation of Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not primarily about prophecy. It's a message about the prophet. Jesus. The very word of God himself. Showing us something of his heart. And so we miss it. If we don't approach it, Revelations is actually a handbook of worship. When you close it, it should be calling you to pause and to lift up your voice and worship him. And if you miss it, if you're, if you're trying to do church and you're putting arrows and that's what you're trying to do, then you will have missed why it was given. The point is here, it's a handbook on worship. And in our mindset, I'm going to suggest our Western mindset. Because our Western mindset is primarily linear. You know what I mean when I say linear versus circular. Much of the world's population has a circular philosophy mindset, meaning that it's around relationships. But in our Western mindset, we have a tendency to want to figure out what event takes place next. We want to know the chronology of things. That's, that's fairly much, a, and I didn't know that until I ended up traveling, and then I went to different parts of the world and realized they don't have the same mindset that I do. They have, based on relationship, events take place, where me, I'm trying to figure out what's next, and then what's next, and then what's next. That's a Western mindset. So in our Western mindset, we are approaching Revelation not in the way it was written. The tendency is to try to know what event's taking place next, versus it centers around the heart of Jesus centers around him. I don't believe it's opposing to have intellectual pursuits from spiritual passion. And Revelations is about both. We approach Revelation. Oftentimes we approach, people approach Revelation seeking to gain insight to my future, wanting to know the things yet to come and when will they come. And in so doing, we miss Jesus in Revelation. This letter was given to the ser servants of Jesus, verse 1. So I'm going to say this. This letter is for you and I today. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, are you? And it's given to the servants of Jesus. So this is my book. He sent this to you. Now, if you just pause for a second and say, well, no, he didn't send it to me. He sent it to all of us. Well, do we deny that he knew you would exist and that you would be hearing or have already read this, I would say, no, it is to you. It's to me. I put your name in there. The book is to you, the servant of Christ. He wants you to understand this. It's a letter to me. It's a letter. Jesus wasn't writing this letter to tell them, there's a big puzzle, and I want you to solve it before I come back. No, instead he wants to show us a number of things. 
Things that will make your life work. If in the middle of your life, in the middle of every challenge you face, in the middle of everything you are undergoing right now, listen to this, in the middle of everything that you are doing, you find Jesus is your strength and victory. And if you do, life works for you. If you don't, you'll miss it. And you'll circle the wagon again. It's not about who you think 666 really is. I grew up, I was told it was Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Then this past year at the convoy, I was told it was his son, Justin. He's 666. And there's a whole method you figure out for Pierre to come with 666. And I was told he was, and then he died, like Pierre did. And, uh, and that kind of threw out the 666 thing. It's not about who you think the two witnesses are. It's not about who you think or when you think the rapture will occur. It's not about your theory of pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. It means tribulation. It's a focus on Jesus. Jesus, help me. Help me to understand your heart. See, John, we're following John to the heart of Jesus. And John is trying to say this in the fragility of human effort. In verse 3, Jesus says the time is near. Chapter 1, verse 3, the time is near. The time is near. And I know I've grown, I've heard this many times. Yeah, pastor, I heard that when I was a boy, and I did too when I was 10, 10 years old in the Sunday school class. The time is near. You need to be ready. It could be tonight. The thief comes in the night. And right at that time, we had this, this, the movie Thief in the Night by uh, Mark Four or whatever it was, production studios, Thief in the Night. Scared the jahibis out of me watching the Thief in the Night. And, you know, how many of us didn't get up in the morning and, couldn't find mom or dad around. We thought the rapture took place and we were left behind, right? <laughs> Scared us and, and oh, how many times that happened? How many times? And, and our parents would play into it, you know. They'd do that just to scare us and say, you need to be ready, you know. That lie you told. So uh, we've heard people say, you know, when, he, when, when in verse 3, the time is near. Jesus says the time is near. We say, yeah, it's been, it's been near for 2,000 years. Here's the point. The Lord needs us to gain a heavenly perspective when we hear that. The time is near. Let's get out of this moment for a second. I know it's hard. The time is near. Let's get a heavenly perspective. Otherwise, you will continue to be driven by this world's continuum. Jesus is saying, because the time is near, he's saying, I want you to see that wherever you are at the end of, Whatever you're doing at the end of, where are you? The end of where you are. Whatever difficulties you are finding yourself in now. Whatever struggles you are in right now. This is all brief comparison with what life is ultimately about. That's what he's saying. The time is near. Meaning, don't get caught up because we get so caught up in our calendars and in our moments of time. He says, don't lose perspective. We are a small part of something your life is bigger than this moment that you're going through. You might think it's the be-all that ends all and the world stops and stops right there. And he says, no, the time is near. There's a bigger ultimate story going on. There's a bigger story. Realize you're part of a bigger story. And it's still being scripted. So friends, your life is not ultimately about your present financial problem. Because it can consume you. But life is not ultimately about that. It's not ultimately about your present home problems or your present health problems. 
or whatever the problems might be. And I'm not suggesting that these are, I'm not saying be passive about these problems, but what he's saying here, make sure you see Jesus in the midst of what you're going through. Don't let these moments overshadow Jesus is with you. And it so happens, it happens all the time. How many times we get through a frantic, fret, fret-filled day and we never just stopped and says, I need to just bring Jesus into this. I had a board member, I've mentioned this before, and honestly, he, you know, he didn't have a whole lot to offer in regard to ideas and insightfulness. But when we came into complex problems that we were facing as a church, he would not hesitate to stop and say, why don't we just spend a moment and pray about it? And I so appreciate it. I hear him today in moments where it's just like, okay, situations are big, big right here and it's consuming. And the last thing your mind is thinking about is why don't you just stop and pray for a moment? Jesus, I bring you into the center of this. That's what Revelation chapter 1 is attempting to do. So from verses 9 to verses 20, the letter reveals, I'm going to share six things we can learn about our Lord as we follow John to the heart of Jesus. Let's go. Number one, verse 9. Starts off in verse 9. If you have your Bibles, look to it. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then it lists off the seven churches. Okay. First one, Jesus' love can find you anywhere. Verse 9, I, John, was on the island of Patmos. I want to start there. I, John, was on the island of Patmos. Today, there are tours ships that will take you by the island. You can see the island, the island where John was for a number of years, where he delivered this letter, where the vision of God was given him. But back in John's day, it was really an unknown island. And the point in all this is Jesus was visiting John And John wanted to make that the point. John's point in saying that I, John, was on the island of Patmos. His point was saying no matter how you find yourself in a God-forsaken place. You know that expression, God-forsaken? I'm going to suggest there is no place God-forsaken. Because if there ever was a place in the Roman Empire, it was the island of Patmos. That people said God forsook. You went, but you didn't come off. It's a God-forsaken island. And yet John was saying the contrary. John was saying, if you believe you are in a God-forsaken place, realize, Jesus is saying, realize my love finds you. Wow. I, John, was on the island of Patmos. And the love of Jesus found him right there. Jesus' love can find you anywhere. You know, if I was to stop right here and God bless you and send you on home... That could be enough to sustain you for a while right there. No matter what you are at the end of now, you have not gone too far where his love hasn't sought you out and found you. Praise God. 
I get blessed right here. This is the part that I got all blessed early this morning and I, an old song came in my heart. I love you, I love you, I love you. And it repeats and it repeats. For my heart will follow wholly after you. I love you, Lord. Why? Because wherever I am, there is no place I can hide. No place I can be sent. No place I can be banished to where his love hasn't found me. Praise God. I, John, was on the island of Patmos. What was seen as a God-forsaken place. And there, his love found me. There's a worship song we sang it last week and we may well close in it today. The words go like this. The reckless love of God chases me down. Fights till I'm found and leaves the 99. The overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. You know that word? I didn't like the song at first because I didn't like the word reckless. Because I was told when I was growing up I was a reckless teenager. And it was never in a positive sense. But I looked up the word reckless. And the word reckless means at the sake of your own risk. And it comes from Philippians chapter 2 where it says that God humbled himself. Jesus, the Son, humbled himself and did not consider his deity so great that he wouldn't make himself of humanity so that we might know his love. And some would call that reckless. One of the parts of the definition is he risked everything so he could be with you. So there it is, reckless. Now I kind of like the song, now that I know what reckless means. It wasn't, you know, just, you know, you're a reckless driver. It was, no, he abandoned everything. Now the song makes sense. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. We sing that song. This is what John is saying. I, John, was on the island of Patmos. His love can find you anywhere. Praise God. Secondly, verse 10. Let me just continue there. Verse 10 says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit. <laughs> On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit. Uh, and a loud voice behind me like the trumpet. Second point I want to make here is with Jesus you can rise above any circumstance. John is on a colony owned by Rome. Rome was the great power of the world at the time. There was no escape the island. Rome had a firm grip. So John was on this island. He was under the control of Rome. If you would, under the heel of Rome. And John was saying that he was at the end of the world and there was nothing in human power he could do about it. Rome was fully in control. But he said, on that day, I was in the spirit. I mean, do you hear that? Can you identify with your surroundings and circumstances to being at their absolute limits of possibility? John had no other possibility. He was at the beck and call of Rome dictated to John. He was in shackles. He was on an island. He was under Rome's control. And yet they could not control. He was in the Spirit. They couldn't stop the Holy Spirit. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. No matter the absolute limits of my possibilities, God's Holy Spirit transcends them. The Father says, I have come to be with you. And so John 
even under, under the heel of Rome, John could worship and was transcended out of the power of Rome into the heavenly presence of God. Praise God. I want to suggest to you when we sing songs of worship on a Sunday morning, don't sing songs of worship on Sunday morning. Lift up your hearts, lift up your voice, lift up your eyes, and step out of this world for a while. Be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. We were saying last night in our Zoom prayer meeting that Paul spoke of that we would sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, songs that testify of God's goodness, hymns that speak of our belief system of who he is, and spiritual songs. We begin to just let a new song resonate inside. I step out of my world here today, whatever your world is throwing at you. It may seem like you have no control of your life. You do. Step into the Spirit. Praise God. You can do it. I, John, on the island of Patmos was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I was in the most hated part of the world, and yet I was in the most glorious place. I was in the Spirit. And so can you. So can you. With Jesus, you can rise above any of your circumstances. Paul would say it. He says, I mean, this is not a hallucination. This is not getting you into your happy place. This is a reality. Paul would recognize the reality. He says, neither height nor depth, angels or principalities or powers, things present or things to come, or any other thing can separate you from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the point is, there is nothing in this world, nothing in this world that can so disclose your life that you cannot just transcend it by getting in the Spirit with the Lord. Praise God. Thirdly, Jesus is the Redeemer of circumstances. So John in verse 10, let's pick it up again, verse 10, John says, on the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see where the voice was. He was speaking to me. Okay. Um, I like how, if we go back even to verse 8, it says... Jesus describes himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty God. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. It's the first letter. It's like A. Omega was the last letter and is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. It's like our letter Z. I am the A and the Z and everything in between. I like what Eugene Peterson's translation from the Greek text, the Message Bible, says. He says, the God who is, the God who was, and the God about to arrive. Don't you like that? I'm going to do The God who is, the God who was, and the God about to arrive. He's still active. And Jesus is saying, your history can't be written until I have the last word. We think our history is all pretty predestined. Nothing can change. And he is saying here in this text, he is saying Jesus is the redeemer of circumstances. And history, he's the beginning, he's the end, and he's everything in the middle. And he is saying your history is not predetermined until I have the last word in your life. 
If Jesus is the beginning, our author, our finisher of faith, if he is the creator, the consummator, the redeemer, and healer, then wherever you are in life's history, Jesus is there. He's saying, I am going to write the end of your story, and I'm going to write it in my way, no matter your circumstances. So you think your circumstances have dictated your history? Jesus says, I write your story, and I finish your story my way. You've got to believe that. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, it continues on. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were like white wool, white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Here John was writing somewhere between the dates of 85 A.D. and 95 A.D. We don't know exactly when. I'm going to say 90 A.D., take or give. He's about 90 years old. He's describing his encounter with Jesus. Now let's remember something here. This is somebody, unlike any of us, this is somebody who knew Jesus in the flesh. This is somebody who for years walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, brushed up alongside Jesus, ate with Jesus. He was with Jesus for over three years, day in, day out, for over three years. John knew the Jesus who walked on this earth. This is the John who knew him in, on the hills of Jerusalem, who knew him on the Mount of Olives. When John wrote this letter of Revelation, he is 60 years removed from the last time he saw Jesus in person. 60 years removed. And here, when John last saw him, Jesus was blessing his disciples. You can read of it in Acts chapter 1, the story around verse 10, Jesus and how he addressed his disciples before he ascended up into heaven. John was there. John is recalling, as he wrote in the Revelation, he's recalling his actual time with Jesus. 60 years prior, he walked and talked and fellowshiped with Jesus in person. And now here, he sees Jesus again in a vision. And this encounter is totally different than he remembers Jesus. This is somebody who knew Jesus. He hears a loud voice like a trumpet. He had never heard that coming from Jesus before. He turns and looks. And now what he begins to describe, he struggles. You pick it up in his words. Don't you pick it up? He's struggling to describe it. This is somebody who knows Jesus. He's struggling to describe. His words are failing him. He labors to come up with his words. He has eyes like fire. His hair like anything I've ever seen. And then he goes and he tries to describe the splendor and majesty of Jesus. And then in verse, 10, verse 18, he hears Jesus say these words, I hold the keys of death and Hades. The Bible says that when John looked at him, 
It's too much. This is somebody who knew what Jesus looked. When John looked at him 60 years later, when John beheld him in the vision, it was too much. The Bible says, John declares, I fell down like I was dead. I fell down like I was dead. Some believe he was slain in the spirit. I fell down like I was dead. Down I went. I guess here's the point I'm trying to make. Although no one knew Jesus more than John, I would contest no one knew him better than John, who, humanly speaking. I mean, John was the disciple. He referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. We've been talking about that as we've been going through this journey. John was the one who always was getting right up beside Jesus. He was scuttling up beside Jesus all the time. Even when Peter wanted to have a private conversation, John was there. John never went far from Jesus. And when they sat at the table, there was John right beside Jesus at the table. In so much so when disciples wanted to say something to Jesus, they would ask John, would you ask Jesus And John had no hesitation to put his manly head on Jesus' shoulder. He loved him that much. And he knew that Jesus loved him. This is the same John who now in the sight of the triumphant Christ, it was more than he could bear. Beloved, this morning, never lose sight. Never lose sight of how huge, how wonderful, How absolutely awesome your Redeemer is today. He's not simply a lamb that was slain. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And John beheld him in a way he had never seen him before. So let's recap it. Jesus' love can find you anywhere. With Jesus, you can rise above any circumstance. Jesus is the Redeemer Of all your circumstances. Number four, Jesus really is closer than you think. When we think we're at the end of life and what life offers us, and that there is no more, the Lord says, You may think you know me well, like John, my beloved, but you haven't seen anything yet. You haven't seen anything yet, Wayne. You think you know, but you have yet to behold me. He is saying, Lift up your heads. Lift them a little higher because I am greater than you have ever known. I am greater than you can imagine. I am more powerful than you think and I am closer than you think. So I pray along with the Apostle Paul that the eyes of our hearts here today may see this. Paul likewise had a vision and here's how Paul described it in Ephesians 1.18. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realm, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Wow. Wow, we get it. Okay. Jesus is really closer. He's really closer than I think. Number five, I take you down to verse 15. Jesus is your security. John describes his feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. Feet that were once wounded have now become the feet of dominion. 
Bronze denotes strength. Think about the last thing the disciples saw of Jesus. Luke 24, 51. They watched him go up. Angel showed up in Acts 1, 8, 10 tells us, why do you stand here gazing? In the like manner you saw him go, he will come. The last thing, what did the disciples see? They saw his near nail-pierced feet leaving. And so John, quite aware of that, speaks of his feet. But now he's not talking the nail-pierced feet. He says his feet had a bronze quality. Didn't say they were bronze feet. They said they appeared as bronze. They were like bronze. The glory and authority of Jesus who sits on the throne is evidence that all principalities, all powers are under his feet. And he has called you and I to find completeness in him. Jesus is my security. His feet are like bronze. All authority is under him. I'm secure in him. And lastly, Jesus' hand is upon you. If you continue to read verses 16 through to 20, you will notice that in verse 16 that the Savior has his right hand on the stars. Think about it. Stars are big. Okay, we're not talking stars in Hollywood. We're talking real stars. Says here, Jesus has his hand on the stars, his right hand on the stars. John saw Jesus' hand on the stars and then makes the life-changing point in the same statement, the very next verse. He says, then Jesus placed his right hand on me. Here's the point. The same God who holds the stars in place simultaneously holds you. Isn't that beautiful? The same God who holds the stars reaches down. Put your name in there. Put your name in there. Holds you. John says, I saw him. One verse, he's holding the stars. And then he reached down with the very same hand and held and holds John. And holds John. Wow. His hand is upon me. His hand's upon you. He's not so caught up in the cosmos of the universe that he hasn't seen you. We understand when, we understand when John wrote John 3, For God so loved the world. You. His hand's on you. Jesus' love can find you anywhere. With Jesus, you can rise above any circumstance. Jesus is the redeemer of your circumstances. Jesus really is closer than you think. Jesus is your security. And his hand is upon you. It's upon you. Whatever circumstances you're going through, his hand is upon you. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.